It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, my guest is the senator from Missouri, Josh Hawley, who has a new book, Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. It's not a book that you necessarily would expect to get from a U.S. senator. It seems more like something that would be designed to help a lot of Americans across the country who are dealing with the issues related to the decline of masculinity and a a, a positive form of manhood in America. Uh, And as such, it's a challenging book from a number of different perspectives. I had a great conversation with Josh Hawley about this, and you can listen to it right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Senator Hawley, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Hey, thank you. Uh, I want to talk to you about this book. Uh, It's interesting. It does not seem to me like the kind of book a typical politician uh, in your status or your stature or your point in your career would write. Um, It's surprising in a lot of ways uh, in terms of the content that's within it. What was it that spurred you to feel like you needed to address this crisis in the United States? Really my boys. I mean, that's where it started. I've got two little boys, 10 and I say little, I mean, they're 10 and eight now. And then I've got a little girl at home uh, who's two but it was really being a father, I and mean, you know what this is like, Ben. Becoming a father changes your perspective on a lot of things. But then as my boys have, are starting to get older, they're school age, of course. I mean, they're heading into my older boys is knocking on the door of his middle school years here in a few years. And just seeing their world that they're living in, the influences, you know, hear all of this, this talk about, now oh, there's no such thing as gender. There's no such thing as manhood or womanhood. And then the constant barrage of messaging from our culture that, you know, if you're a boy, if you're a man, that there's something that's wrong with that. And I I just, that's what got me thinking about this. And then seeing it, of course, from a public policy perspective, I mean, you can see that the numbers, the the suicides among men, the drug abuse among men, uh, the depression levels among men, it's off the chart. I mean, it's just undeniable that we have some kind of a crisis going on among men in this country. And so those things came together and I thought, well, Maybe this is something I should dig into. Hmm. You know, you talk about the uh, the crisis when it comes to suicide uh, in a personal way, uh, how it's affected you and affected those close to you. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the decision that you made to address that, because uh, you know it's it, it seems to me that that's that's a very hard thing to talk about, and I say that as someone who also, you know, uh, I I lost. Uh, I've lost basically my three closest friends to war, uh, 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 a uh, tragic car accident, and suicide over the course of my life. Um, was it difficult for you to grapple with that and sharing that on the page? Yeah, in fact, I didn't. I didn't set out 
to write it that way. I, I was trying to think about how do I, how can I share something that connects? And you know, part of this, Ben, is I mean, you know, as a writer, when you start writing, it doesn't always it doesn't always end up how you first intended to go. But with this, I, I tell the story about my best friend who I lost to suicide when I was 23. He was just shy of his 23rd birthday. He was 22. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up, I found myself writing about it. To be honest, I haven't talked about it much in 20 years. I mean, I'm 43 now. So that was 20 years ago this year, this April, uh, as a matter of fact. And uh, I, I really haven't said much about it. Um, and for me, it was trying to think about what are, what are men struggling with and what does it look like, um, this, this struggle with a loss of sense of purpose and, and meaning. And so uh, I ended up writing about that. And, and uh, it, you know, it, was, it was a journey for sure, but I, um, I, I wanted to be it, it, something that was, has been a significant moment in my life. And uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to share it. I mean, it's just something authentic uh, that, uh, that I came to me as I was writing. So. The book is shot through, obviously, with uh, your perspective on Christian faith. It seems to me, though, that there is this uh, underlying element of your indictment of the approach of American culture to masculinity that essentially demands a return to faith that cannot be achieved through politics or through any kind of government schedule. The typical political book is a politician both telling their life story and then saying, this is the bullet points of things I believe and why I believe them. And here's the agenda that I'm offering the country. Yeah. Your book does not come off like that. Uh, you know, instead it's much more, I think, personal. What do you think though, is the things that we can do on the margins to urge the kind of responsibility, the kind of manhood that you suggest is so essential to the American project? I think the key thing that we've got to start with is we've got to send a message to every man in America and especially young men that their life matters and that we need them to step up. We need them to be responsible and that their life, if they will choose right where they are, if they will choose to take responsibility, to provide for the people they love, to, to shoulder their potential, they can change the, the trajectory. They can change the destiny of their family, their neighborhood, and this country. I mean, I, I just distill it down to that. And then as I talk with young men, around the country. I used to teach them, and that comes through in the book. I talk about some of my conversations with students over the years, and as I get to talk to them now across my state and around the country, this is my message to them, is that you are vitally needed. And hey, America needs stronger men. We need mm -hmm. men who are going to be responsible. We need men who are going to be providers, be protectors, be builders, as I talk about in one of the chapters. So I think that sending that message is absolutely clear. And then, you know, if you want to talk about some of the the policy implications of this, there are those. And I talk about, for instance, the, the loss of blue-collar work, blue-collar jobs in this country. I think that's a big deal. I mean, mm -hmm. I, when you've got 70% of men in this country, I believe the statistic is, who do not have a four-year college degree, we need to quit telling those men there's something wrong with them. You know, that, oh, you got to go to college to get any respect in this country. I think that's totally, completely wrong. And as a policymaker, I think we need to be focused on getting good paying blue collar jobs back in this country and urging the men who want to do those, which is a lot of men to say, Hey, that's great. We need you to do that. That's honorable work. That's awesome. You should be applauded. You should be honored and uh, you should be saluted for wanting to be a provider for your family. So I think there are significant policy cash outs here, but you're, I agree with your setup, which is that what, what fundamentally what, what ails America uh, in terms of what we see with men 
can't be fixed by passing some bill. It's got to be fixed by the men themselves turning back and saying, wait a minute, there is purpose for my life. My life can make a difference. I do have a destiny in the future. And I turn to the Bible to try to say what I think that is and, and where hope lies. There's this viral statistic that's out there, but it's, it's one that does have merit, which is essentially pointing to one of the worst uh, uh, performing uh, British areas and saying that that's the median American lifespan, this increase of death in America and uh, death rates in America that comes earlier and earlier. And most of that, when you look at it, is driven not by as much as the Europeans would like it to be driven by, you know, the presence of guns or the fact that we drive a lot of cars. Uh, but it seems to be mostly driven by deaths of despair, as they call them, either uh, the overdoses that we've seen within our communities, you know, uh, fentanyl on the one hand, opioids as well, that have driven up and become, you know, the most prevalent form of death that we see for uh, Americans who are of an age that they ought to be able to live for decades and decades more. To me, a big part of that is the type of of frame that you uh, put in your book, uh, one of just complete atomization of assumption that, uh, you know, leisure is something spent alone. Um, that seems to me the complete opposite of, of, of leisure historically, but it's one of these things where I feel like there is a need for a policy answer on that front. Something has to be able to be done that prevents these kinds of deaths of, of despair, or at least, you know, prevents the availability, the ready availability of the resources used to essentially wreck your life. I listened to a podcast by uh, comedian Shane Gillis, uh, who uh, is, has always said sort of, you know, why do you commit suicide? Just, you know, move to the middle of nowhere and start doing meth. And that seems to me to be both a joke, but also something that far too many people are actually living out today. Yeah. How do we prevent that? Well, and you're talking to a guy who represents a state that's been hard, hard hit by first meth. You mentioned that. That used to be number one killer of young men in Missouri. It's not anymore. Now it's fentanyl. And we went through the opioid crisis. And I would say a couple things. I mean, the first is those deaths of despair are often fueled. Some, some of them are, are suicides by, shall we say, more traditional means. But you look at the numbers of the addiction, deaths of despair, a lot of them fueled in the last 20 years, 25 years by the opioid epidemic. And, uh, you know, th there's accountability to be had there by the people who help fuel that epidemic by telling Americans that those drugs are 100% safe, you can take them in mass quantities, it's okay, you know, basically big pharma. So I, I don't mince any words in terms of, uh, in my policy stances, what I think about big pharma and what they've, the, the bill of goods they've sold to Americans. So I think if you want to talk about policy implications here, one of them is, is that big pharma needs to be on the hook. I happen to have sued the big pharma companies as attorney general of Missouri for this reason. They need to be on the hook for what they have done. The flip side of that, though, has been, why is there this despair to begin with? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, the book is in some ways a, an attempt to answer that question by, by turning to what's our, what's our purpose in life, what's our purpose as men. From a policy perspective, I would just say that I don't think it's any accident that a lot of this despair and a lot of these deaths are occurring in communities that are post-industrial communities where good-paying, blue-collar jobs used to be available and now are not. Mm -hmm. Where you had factory towns, you had manufacturing towns, uh, you had areas where there was industry, you could get a good job, you could support your family on that job, now they're gone. In the last 30 years, it has been the decimation of industry in this country, especially blue-collar industry. 
policymakers have got to make it a top priority. Conservatives, I just say to my fellow conservatives, if you really care about the culture, you know, conservatives talk all the time about the culture, great. If you care about the culture, do something about the fabric of our culture, which is good paying jobs for blue collar workers. If we don't do that, all the talk about the culture is not going to amount to anything, in my view. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, sticks out to me, though, about that is that, you know, it is easier to do the kind of jobs and the kind of things that people have that atomize themselves. They work from home. They don't have to come home feeling sore after a job. There's the the Charles Murray bubble test, obviously, of, you know, if you've ever been on a factory floor, have you ever come home, you know, with your back hurting from the work that you did? Um, that's a very different experience of life than what is currently being offered. Bernie Sanders, for instance, is calling for, you know, eliminating a 40-hour work week on behalf of, you know, Americans that he thinks, you know, would benefit from that and would have more freedom but at the same time, you know, what do you end up with? It, you know, what does that look like? It, it's not the same as, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be something that goes toward keyboard warriors and the like. It's something right. that benefits someone like me. It doesn't benefit people who actually have to work a job where they have to be there, you know, physically. And, you know, I, I just have to think, you know, back to, you know, the idea that is established in, uh, uh, I don't know if you're even familiar with it, but he's uh, a you know, folk rock, uh, guy, uh, father, John Misty, uh, who has this song total entertainment forever where he talks about, you know, uh, and a reality where you're able to, you know, bed Taylor Swift every night in the Oculus Rift. Um, and then, you know, ultimately you'll find, uh, at the end of the day that this is a, a, a society, uh, a system where you accomplish nothing in your life other than being kind of stuck in a pod, replaying things over and over again. It sounds like a technological nightmare on the broad scale when you step back and look at it. But when it comes to kind of the appeal that people that can be offered to people who are currently existing in, in, you know, manual labor jobs, jobs where they have to show up on, on time and, and do all these other things and juggle their life with it. There's a certain appeal to it. How can we combat that? Well, I don't, I might dispute your premise. I mean, I, I okay. don't know that there is in sense of the, uh, the appeal. I don't know how much appeal there really is. I mean, I, I'm just thinking of, so I come from a family of farmers. My mother's whole side of the family are farmers. I write about this in my book because my grandpa was a huge influence on my life. And, you know, I just, I, these are guys who work with their hands, right? Every day. They love that work. Love it. Love it. Love it. And I think this total entertainment forever, great phrase, that really does describe modern liberalism. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what I think they offer the country. Yeah. Hey, total entertainment forever. And there's a trade-off though. It's total entertainment for you. Government will provide that in some form. Yes. And meanwhile, but we'll run the country, you know, so yes. let the experts, and the world will decay around you and, and nothing new and good yes. and so, beautiful will be created. <laughs> exactly. So let, the, let the experts do it. You know, you just shut yeah. up and, and go entertain yourself here. You know, have some money, too. You want us to write you a check? Yeah. Oh, we can't mm -hmm. get you a job. We gave those to China, you know, uh, and, and no, there's nothing for you to make. And they're building okay. the pods that you live in now where you can have total entertainment forever. Yeah, so we'll, we'll write you a check, you, but you shut up, you know, remain yeah. pliable, shut up, do this, you know, look at something on the Internet, entertain yourself and, and let us run your life for you. And I think as conservatives, part of what we have to say is that's not liberty, not mm. in our tradition. Our tradition yeah. is, no, the people, strong, independent men and women manage their own lives. 
That means they got to have independence economically, good paying jobs. That means they got to have independence culturally, you know, where the government isn't able to tell them what to do in every aspect of their lives. So I think getting back to that tradition is, is absolutely critical. And I think that having creating good blue collar jobs where people can support a family on a good wage ought to be a top conservative priority. And combating the liberal alternative into this is basically what, as near as I can tell, the liberal program is total globalism, where, you know, we lose three-plus million manufacturing jobs to China. What are they going to do about that? Just write people checks. They just say, Mm -hmm. well, you know, universal basic income. You know, you don't need to work. Here, we'll just give you a check. I don't think that's really what most people want, what most men want. They want to have a job. They want to have an independence, a sense of independence. They want to be able to say they provide because there's a self-respect and dignity that comes from saying, no, hold on. I, I, do, I work for a living. I earn the paycheck. I provide for the people I love. They want to have that. One of the many problems with modern liberalism is it, it wants to take all that away. It doesn't understand any of that. It just wants to write people checks and then say, let the experts run stuff. And I think that's a huge problem. Uh, in about a third of the way through your book, you have a passage that I think is very important about uh, you write throughout the book, obviously, about this Epicurean myth of what manhood looks like. Uh, and you hold up the example of one person in particular, Andrew Tate, yeah. who you describe as a social media provocateur, self-styled success coach for men. Tate's idea of success apparently involves sleeping with as many women as possible, berating them, abusing them, celebrating it all as manly as freedom. As reported by the New York Post, Tate advised his followers to slap, slap, grab, choke women in the bedroom. There's all sorts of other terrible comments that he made. Um, I want to put forward a, an alternate uh, alternate view of Andrew Tate uh, espoused uh, by someone who I also know. Um, uh, he said, I will say it I'm, if I'm just being honest. Uh, there's something I miss and love about Andrew Tate, spirit that animates Andrew Tate. It's very clear. It's very obvious. It's not a malicious spirit at all. Andrew Tate's core message is to respect yourself and act like you're worth, some, you're worth something, achieving something, doing something, get the F up off the couch, like go do something with your life. And I feel like that's the greatest message that anyone could give. Now, that was my former colleague, Tucker Carlson, someone who is aligned with you frequently in media politically. I think Tucker is absolutely wrong about Andrew Tate, and I think you're absolutely right. Why is he making the mistake, as so many other conservatives that I know, of viewing Andrew Tate as being a positive voice of masculinity uh, versus a negative? Because I have heard that from so many people who are in this space, who are conservative and who you know tend to speak about the the need for a return to you know positive manhood i think of it as adjacent to the, to the i mean uh, bap the bronze age pervert you know, I, you may have heard of him but he's someone who's you know written for a lot of, of places i think of it though as the antithesis of of manhood the antithesis of responsible fatherhood and the treatment of others um adjudicate this for me answer this question yeah i i think what you have is you have decades now of the modern liberal attack on the very idea of masculinity i mean really it's on gender right it's manhood and womanhood as we're seeing now play out with girls sports with the idea of femininity that's a different subject but when it comes to manhood you've got the liberal line which is men are inherently toxic to be a man is to be inherently destructive 
that nothing you can do as a man that is in any way masculine in any traditional sense is good. In fact, it is inherently evil, right? That's the constant barrage that the left and increasingly the media and our educational establishment pushes on boys and men. So then over and against that, you have a, a, what appears to be a reaction from sort of the Andrew Tate-like folks. The problem with, my problem with them, though, is, is that they, they t- appear to embrace what I think is the fundamental falsehood of the leftist narrative. you got people like Andrew Tate said, yeah, to be, to be a man is, is to be an aggressor, an abuser. It is yes. to be toxic. And that's good. You know, it's good to be toxic. My, my message is it's, it's fundamentally wrong. Both parties have got it wrong. They bought into the Andrew Tate-like camp has brought, bought into the leftist lie. To be a man is not inherently toxic. It is not inherently uh, destructive. That's just not true. Mm-hmm. Are, are, are men on, on balance more aggressive? Yes. Are, do, they, do, they, do they love strength? Yes. You know, is that good? Yes, absolutely. But that is mental. Are your boys more destructive than your girl? I oh, mean, she's only two, but still. <laughs> totally. totally. No question. My wife and I laugh all the time. You know, our boys, we couldn't, we couldn't allow them to be alone. They would, like, throw themselves down the stairs. You know, my little girl, she's like, civilized, right? She gets it. It's like, I'd like to live my life. You know, I don't want to be dead. The boys, you know, civilization would not exist, you know, had it not been for, for uh, mothers and women, you know, in mm-hmm. our infancy protecting us. There's something to that. But then the boy grows up, right? And he learns to challenge, or he learns to channel, rather. That aggression, that strength, that adventure, sense of adventure, he, he channels that towards providing, towards protecting, towards pioneering, towards breaking a path. You know, and this is why in the book I talk about the different virtues of a father, a husband, a warrior, a builder. You know, we need that masculine strength. We need men to be stronger. So I think the answer is it's just not true that manhood is inherently toxic. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't turn around and defend it and say, yeah, yeah, manhood is toxic and that's good. No, that's, mm-hmm. that's wrong. To, to be a man is to have a sense of purpose, is to be called toward a, a certain sense of a, a certain set of duties, to be a husband, to be a father, to be a builder, to be a warrior. And uh, that's what the book is about. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that is uh, so important that you can take away from this book is uh, the restoration of faith. And yet I don't, I do not see for the most part in our current culture, the indications that that restoration is happening. Obviously that restoration has to come from something other than government policy can work on the sidelines to, you know, change the way that we treat welfare or the way that we, you know, potentially, you know, uh, reward uh, activity that results in more fatherlessness. But there does not seem a strong element of revival except for this, there are signs, as you may have seen in, in the most recent poll data collected by a number of different sources, but this includes, you know, Pew Research, which is, you know, a gold standard type of operation, that the youngest generation of Americans is actually far more interested in church going and does attend church more than those in the middle set. You can ascribe various reasons to this. A lot of people have said it's something that comes out of the pandemic or out of the experiences of their own childhood. Do you see green shoots when it comes to any kind of religious restoration in America? Yeah, I do. And I think at the core of that, then, is a longing for purpose. And I think you can't talk to a, a young man in America and not just feel the longing for that. You know, people, the, the liberal line is for 
you know, a couple centuries now. This is the Epicurean liberalism I talk about in the book, but we, we see it in our popular culture all the time. The liberal line is, listen, the universe is basically meaningless, right? There's, there's not, it's, it doesn't mean anything. You got to bring, bring the meaning, right? And how do you bring the meaning? Indulge yourself, pleasure, go make yourself happy, mm-hmm. go do whatever it takes to, to make yourself happy. Th- that is a gospel that has been preached for 50 some years at a very loud volume in this country, and you see the results of it all around you, and you see young people, I think, saying, uh, there's got to be more to life than this. And I think that is a hopeful response. They're looking around, and this is one of the reasons I tell so many stories in the book, and that I, I look overall at the story of the Bible. I mean, I look at the overarching story of the Bible, and what, what do men in the Bible do? Because I think we need the story. We need to see, like, hold on, what, what does it actually look like? What's the model here? What, what, what is an alternate view of reality, which is what you're getting at? I mean, the Bible mm-hmm. presents an alternate review of reality. It says, actually, no, there is a purpose for your life and that you as a man have a purpose and that your life is going to have influence for good or for ill. You decide, right? I mean, it's up to you to decide. It can have tremendous influence for good. And, you know, you can be the one who changes the destiny of, the fam- of your family. You can be the one who breaks cycles that, uh, you know, have come down in your family. You can change that. You can do it. And I think that kind of message, people are hungry for that. Young men are hungry for that. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's extremely hopeful. Then it's, it's a big reason I wrote the book. It's a big reason I talk so much about the Bible. I tell so many stories about men who've been influential in my life. Is I think those stories, that model, that sense of hope and purpose is really what, what men, especially young men, are longing for. Uh, you write obviously about your own, uh, challenges in terms of your, uh, your wife's experience with miscarriage. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I think is difficult for uh, people to write about, but certainly difficult for men to write about. Um, how can we change the understanding of miscarriage in American society? I saw a friend just this past week, uh, you know, bemoaning this fact, including, you know, sort of the, the treatment of her own, uh, miscarriage. Uh, and uh, it was it's very sad to me that people are not more open about that experience and what it entails. Is that something where we can achieve some kind of change and what does it require? Yeah, you know this is I, I do tell that story. It was a hard story to tell. This is our our first um, our first baby, my wife's first pregnancy. Uh, we lost to to we lost the baby to miscarriage. And I tell it partly because to me, it was it brought home to me the significance of fatherhood and what a gift it is. You know, it really changed as a man, you know, I'm not carrying the baby, obviously, and, and no men can't get pregnant it's for those who are still in any doubt. So it, it changed, though, for me, the significance of fatherhood, because I began to see what fatherhood is an incredible gift. It's not just it's not just a biological fact. It's not something you can count on. And the millions of couples who want to have kids and can't can attest to that. Right. I mean, there could be a lot of pain involved. But it is an incredible gift. It is an incredible responsibility. And losing our, our first baby really brought that home to me, which is why I tell the story. You know, I, we did find in our experience that uh, almost nobody talks about miscarriage. It's funny, after my wife miscarried and we you know, shared that with just a few people, it was amazing how many people in our family, you mm-hmm. know, older adults in our family, said, oh, yeah, we, we also had a miscarriage. But we'd never heard that before. Nobody ever talks about it. So I think it partly speaks to the need for... Folks, number one, for, for men buying into being husbands and fathers, but then also I think for living our lives in communities where we really see and know each other. I think part of it gets back to the atomization you referenced earlier, Ben. I think one of the reasons that you know we don't talk about this much is that more and more we live 
lives where we're not really that deeply connected with other people. You know, yeah, you may see the same person at work and be friendly with them and maybe you see the same set of people, you know, the grocery store or wherever else you may go. But, you know, we're, we have more and more in our modern culture, we live hermetically sealed lives where we're not deeply enmeshed with other people, where we're really doing life together. And I mm-hmm. think one of the things that came out of that for me, besides the deep significance of fatherhood, the gift that it is, is also that, you know, it's a privilege to have people in your life where they know when things like this happen, you can walk through it together and you live in a community where it's like, I'm actually going to see this person face to face. It's a real community. where We care about each other. And I think rebuilding those communities at small scale in our churches, you know, in our neighborhoods, that is a deeply conservative project. And it's one that's well worth undertaking. Last question for you. There's a, um, there's a perspective on uh, American political leadership as well in this. Uh, It underlies a lot of what you're writing about here in the book in the sense that we have a political leadership now, uh, a class that has largely never worked with their hands, uh, has not served in the military, um, has not had to uh, rebuild a car or a house, has not had to learn the lesson that you can be good without being perfect. Um, That kind of tragic lesson that Victor Davis Hanson writes about about existence, something that was untrue of a lot of America's presidents and America's political leadership historically. Is there a way to restore that to a government environment that seems to be much more about the test of whether you're going to be a pundit with a flag pin or, you know, someone who doesn't have to, you know, go through the, the expectations of prior generations when it comes to learning the lessons that come from that kind of hardworking, rough-handed, you know, sore experience uh, that informed so many of, of our great Americans, you know, going back to Teddy Roosevelt, who you obviously wrote uh, wrote about, but also others as well. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I do think that a lot of the cri- current crisis of American politics, if I can put it that way, can be explained by the fact that our elites, our elected officials, policymakers, and elites are increasingly totally disconnected from the way of life that most Americans live, from the kind of work that they do, from the kind of neighborhoods they live in, from the churches that they go to. So there's this yawning chasm that continues to get wider and wider and wider. And that, of course, is is deeply, deeply unhealthy for a democracy. Uh, what's the answer to that? I mean, I would say it's it's for the folks who are, who are the self-appointed experts and, and say that they're the ones who govern the country is to actually go back and and listen to the people who elected you and go back and and live the life that they live. I mean, I just think there's no substitute for actually living out the life of the people who you say you're there to represent. I mean, I I don't know what else to to say about that. And then we need more folks who are in, you know, everyday walks of life and say, you know, man, I would never think about running for office. Well, we probably need you to, you know, I mean, you're a farmer, your mechanic, your electrician, you know, whatever. Um, boy, we need we need to hear your voice. But you know, I, I think our, our our elites have forgotten who they represent. I mean, that's what I would just say. I think they've forgotten who they represent. I can just tell you, I've been in Washington four years, not very long. Sometimes it seems like a lifetime. And I tell you, who's very well represented? The views of Wall Street are very well represented. The views of the C-suite very well represented. Right? The views of people with money are very well represented. The views of your average blue-collar worker, no. No. The views of your average electrician, plumber, farmer, no. 
And uh, that, I think, has, has got to change. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just I think that the people who are currently in power have got to remember who it is, who, who sent them there and, and why they're there. I'll just leave you with this. I, um, one of my, uh, my cousins uh, who I was just hanging out with the other day, he's an electrician. It's one of the reasons that comes to top of mind for me. And, and I'm really proud of him. He just got his, his certificate and he's uh, doing great. He's quite a bit younger than I am. He's one of my younger cousins. But he said something interesting to me when I got elected to the Senate. I get elected and he says to me, this is shortly before I you know, went to go take my oath and all that stuff. And his comment to me was, he said, Josh, don't, don't forget the people who got you where you are and who you're supposed to represent. And I just thought, you know, that was simple, straightforward advice, but it was really profound advice. And I, I think that it is uh, not very many folks are living by that right now. Senator Hawley, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So I wanted to share with you just a few thoughts about what we are currently seeing when it comes to the 2024 presidential stakes. Still, we are waiting for Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, to jump in with both feet and declare himself a candidate for the nomination. But there were some interactions in Iowa over the past couple of days that clearly showed that he intends to jump in and what it would look like when he does. One thing that is very clear is that his wife, Casey, is going to be close at his side uh, and that his team clearly understands the value that she brings to his campaign as someone who is both adept politically, but also someone who can reach out and be perhaps be more empathetic than DeSantis himself. Ron DeSantis has been hit by a number of different critiques, the major one really being that he does not have a kind of personality that makes you want to have a beer with him or sit down with him and talk with him. That's something that I think you know has been leveled at a lot of different political candidates over the years when it comes to presidential politics. Uh, but I also think that it's very overrated when it comes to judging the best presidents. The presidents that I would most likely have want to have a beer with are not necessarily the best ones that we have had historically. But I also think that one of the things that we can come away from this experience with in terms of the DeSantis approach when it came to uh, reaching out in Iowa, having a number of different events, and then adding an additional event uh, when, it, uh, when a Trump uh, rally was canceled, is that he does not have any fear about trolling the big guy, in this case, Donald Trump. He does not seem to be in any way uh, afraid of of, uh, openly going out there, teasing him, uh, needling him, uh, and proceeding in such a way that uh, he will directly challenge the former president. This is both a positive and a negative. One is that it seems like he's not someone who's going to be afraid of taking this on. That's a positive. The negative is, of course, that if he does it too much, he risks losing the same supporters of the former president who he would like to win over. Maybe this is a situation where DeSantis is a candidate very similar to Ted Cruz, uh, a more conservative candidate, but also one who is viewed perhaps as being you know, less chaotic, uh, more traditional than the former president. But he does not have the defect of being uh, the Ted Cruz who pissed off virtually everyone in Washington uh, when he uh, took up the Obamacare filibuster that we remember. That's something that I think is something that, you know, is is a real question mark going forward. Ted is, uh, despite what you might think of him, having hung out with him on many an occasion, a very funny, sarcastic person uh, who is actually quite entertaining and can even be very charming. 
But he's also someone who is, because of his, you know, a very aggressive approach to politics, abrasive and can be viewed as an a-hole by a lot of people who dislike him. DeSantis does not have that defect, but he does have, I think, some of the same nerdy qualities of being someone who was ambitious from a young age, uh, you know, took on politics as something that was very natural as opposed to something that he was, uh, you know, driven to do. Uh, and that with it comes with certain baggage, certain uh, defects uh, that the former president does not have. He also, of course, does not have the celebrity power that the former president has uh, or any of his, you know, quick witted ability to deal with CNN town halls the way that the former president just recently did. What I do think is very interesting, though, is to keep this in mind in Iowa, the former president, when he was running the first time around, underperformed dramatically. He ought to have won running away. He did not. And I think that in the early going, in these contests that we're going to see in a traditional Republican schedule, meaning Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, it's very possible that Ron DeSantis actually has the advantage in those early states in ways that could prove to be very meaningful going forward. Once we get into states that are a little more blue, states that tend to uh, run more in the direction of the former president, things could close in terms of the gap. But it's also possible that Ron DeSantis could come out with a little bit of a momentum from these early going states if he is able to sell himself in a traditional manner there. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.